Welcome to Legal Ethics Now and Next. I'm Jim Dopke, partner at the Chicago firm of Robinson Stewart Montgomery and Dopke. We concentrate our practice in legal ethics, professional responsibility, and professional liability matters. We're all former attorney disciplinary prosecutors, and our partner, Mary Robinson, was the administrator of the Illinois disciplinary system. I'm looking to use this podcast as a way to discuss substantive ideas, practice tips, and trends in our industry here in Illinois and nationwide. In this episode, I'll look at a program I mentioned in the previous episode, the Utah Office of Legal Services Innovation, sometimes known as Utah's Regulatory Sandbox. That program was established in 2020 as a way for lawyers and other professionals to participate in the ownership, management, and operation of entities that provide legal services. Right now in Illinois, for lawyers and other professionals to own those kinds of entities together would not be consistent with our Rule 5.4 of the Rules of Professional Conduct. That's true in many other jurisdictions as well. But in Utah, the so-called sandbox is a space in which the state's regulators allow those kinds of entities to exist after approving their applications to participate in the program and after assessing the risks of the entity harming consumers in certain defined ways, and with the understanding that the entity will be specially regulated and monitored as it continues to operate. The program has been much discussed in ethics and legal regulation circles, as it should be, because the Utah Supreme Court studied it carefully before implementing it, and it continues to analyze the program as it goes. The Office of Legal Services Innovation, the OLSI in Utah, publishes monthly reports showing a lot of different kinds of data about how the program operates. Let's examine some of that data after the break. The latest report covers data about the Utah Sandbox through the end of January of this year. It discloses that there are 32 active entities that have been approved to offer services. Of those, the regulators have determined 5 to be low risk, 12 to be low or moderate risk, 14 to be moderate risk, and 1 to be high risk. But how are those risks being assessed? According to the report, OLSI collects a range of information from reporting entities designed to assess the occurrence of three harms to consumers. Consumer achieves inaccurate or inappropriate legal results. Consumer fails to exercise legal rights through ignorance or bad advice. And consumer purchases an unnecessary or inappropriate legal service. As a former legal regulator myself, I think those are well-crafted criteria. The criteria are tailored to collect data about salient information and not noise. It might be interesting to know if consumers had other kinds of complaints, customer service type complaints, but this program isn't about ensuring that calls get returned on time, for example. It's about exploring what it means for lawyers and other professionals to own, manage, and work together in a business entity. The implications of the other professionals having some kind of managerial authority along with or over lawyers is also a part of what the Utah program studies. And it studies whether that puts customers at any risk for the most tangible of harms, 
to their legal interests. If a business is found to have harm-related complaints from more than 25% of its customers, that business must immediately work with the regulator to develop and implement quality improvement plans, and it may face suspension of its participation in the sandbox. Fewer complaints trigger lower levels of concern and regulatory action. That in itself seems to me to be good data-based regulation, and it results in what appears to be a low number of complaints four since the inception of the program. There was one consumer complaint about an inaccurate or inappropriate legal result, and three about failing to exercise legal rights through ignorance or bad advice. Which is interesting, because I wonder a bit about how the fails-to-exercise-legal-rights type of information is gathered. Does the consumer know when that happens? How? And when? It seems like their knowledge of it could come quite a long time after the services were rendered. When I worked at ARDC, I had experience with reports, for example, of lawyers involving clients in what turned out to be bad business deals. And in those cases, the complainants sometimes didn't or wouldn't or couldn't take action until several years after the initial conduct. But in any event, the low number of consequential complaints in the Utah program must be encouraging for proponents of the program. But we can't just leave it there. Low number of complaints good, so program must be good. Are there other data points that help point to the benefits of this program? We'll explore after this break. There's a lot more data in the report, but two more points I want to focus on. The report states that there were 15,438 legal services sought from more than 10,000 unduplicated clients since the inception of the program. The report breaks down how many legal services were sought from each category of risk. There were 98% of the legal services provided produced by low to moderate or moderate risk entities and 94% of the legal services have been delivered by a lawyer or a lawyer employee, or by software, but with lawyer involvement. Only 974 legal services were delivered by professionals who are not lawyers, but again, there was some level of lawyer involvement in the supervision of those professionals. The report also addressed legal categories by service, the top category of service provided by the entities registered in the Utah program related to military or veterans benefits, 47.6 of the services provided. Then, business-related services relating to, for example, intellectual property, contracts or warranties, and entity formation at 15% of the legal services provided. From there, the other categories that constituted the legal services provided were accident or injury, end-of-life planning, marriage and family, and financial or consumer-related matters. I wouldn't say that I'm an evangelist for regulatory approaches that modify Rule 5.4 and its strictures on entity ownership, but I am interested in them, and I do think that this kind of data helps us best visualize what the changes would really look like. If 94% of the services are provided by lawyers anyway, 
Is there a threat to lawyer livelihood that's posed by the Utah program? And if the top category of services provided involves government benefits that require specialized administrative knowledge rather than more general legal acumen, is that a threat to the legal profession? I think back to when I was beginning my career as a legal aid lawyer. We did some public benefits work for benefits other than Social Security disability benefits, which cases we had to refer out. Unemployment benefits, originally AFDC and then TANF benefits, and of course HUD or Section 8 benefits were the kinds of matters we handled. We did have particularized knowledge about the systems that administered those benefits and the processes for challenging adverse decisions. I don't think we were infringing on a market for those legal services. We were simply helping those who needed help navigating the systems and providing advocacy within those systems. If an entity in Utah is doing that for veterans, and if there is lawyer involvement of some kind, and if there is robust regulation of the service, it seems hard to argue that there's something wrong with the model. Just because of the historic wording of Rule 5.4 and its concern for professional independence. It doesn't seem like independence is under threat based on the Utah data so far. It does bear watching. Maybe there was a backlog of veterans' benefits work that needed to be done, and that could dry up. And maybe as that happens, the entities take on different work that may present more threats to professional independence. But for now, it seems like the need is there, that this program helps present a solution, and that the data is available to help Utah monitor what's actually happening, and for those of us in other states to evaluate benefits and harms for ourselves, for now and for the future. And that's a wrap on episode two. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you found it helpful. For our next few episodes, we're going to shift to some more specific topics on ethics for practicing lawyers, dealing with the disciplinary agency, and not dealing with it. Looking forward to exploring that with you. I'm Jim Dopke. Thanks again, and be well. Be well.